Hello. This is Situational Significance, a pro broadcast, sorry, a co-broadcast with the Vanguard News. So I'm Nick Townsend. You may remember our host from last week, Anthony Montez. He is no longer with us. He's alive. He's just not here. Um, it says, it actually specifically says in my notes to not make a joke about him dying from the coronavirus because that hasn't been funny for like two weeks. So we're not going to do that. Um, but Anthony got a new job and he's busy on Mondays now, so he's just not going to be on the podcast anymore. And we're working very hard to find a suitable replacement who's perhaps even more left-leaning than he is. Okay, so let's dig into it. So our first news story this week is world's largest fireworks set off in Steamboat Springs. Um, so Steamboat Springs is a ski resort town in western Colorado, a beautiful town. Um, and anyways, so they set off a 2,800-pound firework there this weekend as part of their Winter Carnival Nights, which is 400 pounds larger than the previous world record holder, which was set off last year in the United Arab Emirates. And um, this firework actually took seven years of engineering and testing to design, and they tried to set it off last year, and it set off on the ground, according to the news story, which sounds bad. Um, but they were kind of unclear on like if everyone was okay when the mortar exploded on the ground last year, but apparently it was because they did it again this year. And, um, if you go online, you can find the video and, um, it's really cool. And the firework, firework like goes up in the air and just kind of sits there for like 10 seconds. And you can like feel the audience being like, oh God, it's not going to go. It's not going to go. And then it explodes and it's cool. So that's our first news story. Second news story, package labeled bag full of drugs leads to Florida arrest. So uh, this comes from AP News. Two men were charged with drug trafficking after getting pulled over for speeding. They were going 95 on the interstate. Uh, the cop ran their license plate and found that they had an active felony warrant out for their arrest due to violation of parole. Uh, so the officer calls for backup and they show up and they look in the car and there is a bag in the trunk of the car labeled bag full of drugs. And so they open the bag full of drugs and it contains 75 grams of methamphetamine, 1.36 kilograms of the date rape drug drug GHB, one gram of cocaine, 3.6 grams of fentanyl, 15 MDMA tablets and drug paraphernalia. And they were arrested. And I think to me, the funniest thing about this story is that if you look at the bag that says bag full of drugs on it, it um, it's clearly like a gag gift that you get for someone to put stuff in that isn't drugs so that you think like, oh, this bag has drugs in it. And then you open it and it's normal stuff. And it's actually not that funny if you just keep drugs in it. That sort of kills the joke. Um, so and also, if you have an active felony warrant out for your arrest, don't label your drugs. And also, don't go over the speed limit in Florida. That's where all Florida man stories happen. So that's news story number two. News story number three was reported by Michael Kunzelman for AP News, and it's a great reported story, and it's about QAnon. So QAnon is sort of a political phenomenon in, I guess, America. 
I don't know anyone else doing it. So it is a wild, baseless conspiracy theory based on the belief that Trump is waging a secret campaign against enemies in the deep state and a child sex trafficking ring run by satanic pedophiles and cannibals. Um, This belief started on 4chan and is led by the mysterious person known as Q who posts clues for Q followers to decipher but this particular news story from AP News was about um, was following Q followers at Trump rallies. And I thought this piece was incredibly interesting because it talks about how these Q followers go to Trump rallies and they're looking for signs of this conspiracy theory in Trump's speech. And um, the thing I found the funniest was um, there's one moment where Trump's gesticulating on stage and the Q followers say he just traced a Q with his hand. That means like that means he you know he's signaling us with with the cue with his hand but of course like when any public figure is speaking and especially trump they're just waving their hands around a lot and um i just found it really funny that they found that symbol um and so q is also a dangerous conspiracy theory it's prominently associated with pizzagate and the seth rich conspiracy theories both of which have led to arrests um and according to Media Matters, 24 people running for Congress in 2020 have endorsed or promoted the QAnon conspiracy publicly, including Joe Ray Perkins of Lynn County, Oregon. Um, she's running for Oregon's fourth district, I believe, and she has publicly supported the QAnon conspiracy theory multiple times. All right. So the next news story is um, less fun. So the coronavirus has been confirmed in the UK with four cases and racist incidences against the Chinese community in the UK have gone up much more than four cases. So there are four cases of the coronavirus in the UK now. Several of those were actually contracted by British citizens at a ski resort in France from another British citizen. Um, As far as I could tell, not a single actual Chinese Britain has contracted the coronavirus and but there have been multiple attacks on not even chinese people in one case it was just two people wearing face masks who the assailants thought were chinese but then also on several chinese residents of the uk including a grad student who was verbally harassed people have been egged um, and there's been many incidents reported in schools of chinese british students facing harassment which is just really messed up. All right. And our last news story of the day is Parasite. We had to talk about it. The Oscars were last night. Um, I'm going to be honest, I didn't expect it, but Parasite kind of swept. Yeah. So um, in the booth with me right now, I actually have Owen, who... Owen Demeter, who is KP, not KPSU's, who is PSU Vanguard's multimedia director, and we're just gonna have a little conversation about the Oscars last night. So, um, what did we do yesterday in the Vanguard office? Well, first of all, Nick, uh, my, my last name is actually pronounced Dimitri. Um, oh, well, everyone gets that confused. Gotta love good old. Ellis it looks Island. like Demeter. <laughs> it, it does look like Demeter, but it's good old Ellis Island. Uh, and all of that fun stuff. Um, but no, yesterday in the Vanguard offices, we decided to do a bit of a Oscar ballot um, with a single cup of coffee riding on the line. Uh, I thought it was like one cup of coffee per person. Like, we, oh, do I, we all have to buy coffee for the person? I 
I thought it was just like one singular cup of coffee, oh, then so everyone like we, else splits it. Oh, so like we all pitch in like 20 cents for one cup of coffee? Yeah, we had like 12 people Okay, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, so the Oscars, uh, I was actually very surprised by it. Um, there was a lot of actual talent being rec- recognized, which in the past yeah, I saw few it. years... It, hasn't really happened. I saw um, someone say something like, for the first time in the history of the Oscars, the Best Picture Award was awarded to the Best Picture of the Year. I, I don't necessarily think that Oh, it's is, dramatic, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely <laughs> dramatic. It's not true. I mean, you can look back years and years Godfather, ago. Godfather. Godfather, yeah. Apocalypse Now. Um, I'm sure there's Arguably all the ones. Moonlight, yeah. Yeah, Moonlight was fantastic. So there's a lot that have been recognized, but... Last night, uh, history was made in the fact that Parasite has been the first Mm -hmm. uh, foreign language film to ever win Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And it also won Best Foreign Language Film, rightfully so. Uh, Well, see, here's the thing that I really wanted to dig into is that it actually didn't win Best Foreign Language Film because they changed the title of that award to Best International Film. So the Oscars, so the Academy updated the the name of the award. So it used to be up until last year, it was Best Foreign Language Film. Now they said that that's outdated. So we're changing it to Best International Film. Interestingly, they didn't change the rules. So the Best International Film category still can't be in majority. English, which ignores the many countries that aren't America that have English as their primary language. So, like, for example, um, Lionheart, which was a Nigerian film that came out on Netflix this year, was going to be Nigeria's category entry for international Hmm. film, but they couldn't enter it because it was in majority English, even though it was a completely Nigerian film. Well, but could they have not entered it in another category? I mean, not to, like... Well, no. I mean, they definitely could have, but I think um, for other countries with smaller film industries, the international award has kind of been, like, the only safe Yeah, that's very Mm -hmm. true. Um, Parasite is kind of the first film I can think of that really completely broke the international film category open. Well, there was also Roma last year, That's which true. came very yeah. close to winning Best Picture, yeah. um, but it didn't. Uh, overall, though, I'm actually quite happy with the results. Uh, in my Oscar ballot, I got uh, Ford versus Ferrari in 1917 mixed up for sound editing and mixing. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they were both uh, amazing. Um I'm kind of upset. I didn't correctly guess any of the animated or live action shorts. I, I hadn't seen any I of them. Have guessed, yeah. I should have guessed uh, Toy Story 4 as oh, yeah. uh, best Rule animated. number one of the Oscars oh, is it's always Pixar. Pixar. It's always Pixar. I know, except I'm I'm a Leica fanboy. Oh, did you have um, which Leica film was it this uh, year? Missing Link. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. I, I just had to choose it. I, I was mean, really there's no doubt in my mind that that's... A more engaging film than Toy yeah. Story Four, but that's simply not what the awards yeah. about. It's and also about Pixar. Look, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. It's about what the Academy thinks. Should yeah, be. Uh, and that's what makes the ballot so fun. Is that you're not really picking what was best. You're picking what the Academy thinks was best. Yeah, it's it's almost playing psychological mind. Yeah, games it's really like, fun. Who are they going to choose this year? Yeah, I mean, at least also what I will have to say is like the nominations. There was a lot of double dipping, which I was not super happy about because it just seems like what do you can you clarify what you mean by that So what i mean by that is that uh like just a few movies were in like every single category there wasn't a wide variety of movies it was like Mm -hmm. there was 1917 yeah there were like 10 irishman parasite little women jojo rabbit jojo rabbit not as much yeah um well it got um adapted to screenplay though no it did but it wasn't like in a lot of different categories like didn't double dip as much yeah 
mm-hmm. uh, mentioned. And like that's that's my one gripe with this year. Otherwise, I thought it was a good year for the Oscars. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that as far as um, like the message you can take away from the Oscars, I think this year it was a lot better than last year mm-hmm. with the Green Book, and certainly better than two years ago when they had that fiasco with um, Moonlight and La La Land. Yeah, and also them not getting rid of the Best Cinematography Award because yeah. if they got rid of Oh, uh, that was so dumb. I yeah. know. That's, I mean, in my opinion, as someone who loves film. Yeah, that should be has, just as important no, as it, the Best it, it Actor is. Award. Yeah. It's, it's, the Oscars shouldn't be about recognizing famous people who already get recognized because of yeah. the face of the movies. It should be about recognizing the crew members who are behind the scenes putting in yeah, the, the art of 12 the film. hours yeah. a day or more. Um. It has never been about that, though. No, it no. hasn't. But it should, be. <laughs> but it should, it should be. be. No, I completely agree with you. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Owen. Okay. So now we're going to go into our deep dive segment. And this week we are talking about a topic that everyone has been talking about this week, and it is the Iowa caucus system. So the Iowa caucuses, you know, um, I mean, I don't need to tell you. It was a rough week for the Iowa caucuses. Um, So in the booth, we have with us Jack Miller, who teaches American politics and political theory as an instructor at PSU. And he describes himself as a keen, if somewhat reluctant, follower of politics his entire adult life. His podcast is PotholeProblemPodcast.com. And we're going to play a clip of that where he talks about the Iowa caucuses. And then we are going to have conversation with him. There are two kinds of nominating contests that both parties use. Primaries, which are really more like standard elections. You go and you stand in line at a voting booth and you cast your ballot in secret. And at the end of election day, they get counted up and whoever has the most votes wins. A caucus is actually a type of a meeting and it is also an election. At the end of the night, people will cast ballots and those ballots will be counted up and a winner will be determined. But the way those ballots are cast is a really different process from the primary or general election. For a caucus, registered members of a party go to some place like a church basement or an elementary school cafeteria or a union hall. In some cases, actually people's living rooms. And what a caucus is, is it's a meeting where people get together to discuss and decide who they're going to vote for. What happens in a caucus is that there are areas in the gathering place that are marked out for each of the candidates, and the voters, rather than casting a secret ballot, physically place themselves in that area, publicly showing who their support is for. There's also an area for uncommitted voters, which is very different from the ballot box, where if you don't want to vote for somebody for a particular office, you just leave that blank. In a caucus, you stand in the uncommitted area while everyone else gathers in the area designated for their various candidates. At the end of the first round, what... All right, so that was just a brief out primer of what the caucus system is all about. So, Jack Miller, how are you this morning, first of all? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, thanks for being here. So, um, I guess let's talk a little bit about what actually happened at the caucuses this year. So, it was first of all, it was the Democratic Iowa caucus. Yes, exactly. in In a year where there wasn't an incumbent Republican, there would have been a Republican caucus as well at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So, um... Let's just, yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what actually happened this year, and then we can sort of branch out into a more general conversation. Okay. So the two front runners were um, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. Um, and so they got 
roughly equal delegate counts. So could you just explain a little bit about how the actual votes cast turned into these delegate counts and how that turned into state delegate equivalent counts and then how that led to the actual delegates being attributed? Sure. The So the way it works in uh, Iowa is the way it works in a lot of primary states too, where there's a sort of proportional system. It's not a winner-take-all. The electoral college for the general election will be a winner-take-all. If you, you know, if you get one more vote than another candidate, you get all the electoral college votes. In Iowa, it's proportional. And so there are roughly 16 or 1,700 precincts and people go and they do their caucusing and the delegates are, there are 41 delegates in Iowa that are going to get decided based on the results in these different precincts. And so the you'll end up getting a proportional share of that depending on how many votes you get. Now, because it's not done statewide, if you uh, end up, you could end up with more delegates and fewer overall votes. So uh, I think that Pete got more delegates, but had a few yeah. fewer votes than Bernie. Uh, yeah, and it's you know it's hard to tell, but it's 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 theoretically possible to win more votes, but actually have fewer delegates. But it's not going to be a huge difference. It's not as though the winner by two votes is going to get everything. So it's proportional. Yeah, and I mean uh, something I've seen a lot about is how um, the Iowa, like the delegates actually attributed to the national convention from Iowa, aren't especially relevant to a candidate. It's more about building electoral momentum for the races to come. Absolutely. There are almost 4,000 delegates in the Democratic Convention in the summer, and 41 come from Iowa. So it's it's a tiny percentage. New Hampshire, which is happening tomorrow, has 24 delegates. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely, in these early voting states, it's not about Mm -hmm. delegate totals. Later on, and on Super Tuesday, the first Tuesday in March, when there Mm -hmm. are, I think, 515 delegates up for grabs. Is California on the first Super Tuesday? California is the, California has moved ahead to and be that's on a Super really Tuesday. Big deal. That is a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. But also it's it's the fact that uh, Super Tuesday is when you can actually rack up a bunch of points, mm-hmm. but you don't get to get to Super Tuesday with any kind of recognition or fundraising or momentum unless you do well in these early voting states. And uh, that's one of the things that a lot of people have a problem with this particular system is because Super Tuesday has a lot of states that are very representative. They're very large. They, they're, they're swing states. Iowa and New Hampshire are extraordinarily unrepresentative of both the national electorate uh, and the Democratic Party base. And so these two early states that are getting to, you know, essentially confer momentum on candidates don't really look an awful lot like what the later candidates are going to have to run you know, uh, run for on Super Tuesday and certainly in the general election. Yeah, I mean, they get to trim the field, if not actually decide the field. Right. And there's actually a hope, you know, a lot of Democrats right now are saying that they're worried that Iowa, New Hampshire are not going to be trimming the field this year, because Mm -hmm. what they want is they want one or two leading candidates so they can settle on a nominee relatively early. The interesting thing about that is that the desire to have the field trimmed early means that what you're doing is you're letting states that don't really look like uh, any other state. They're super white. They're way more rural than the rest of the country. Uh, They're, you know, Iowa has a lot more evangelical voters, even in the Democratic Party, certainly in the Republican Party than the the national average. So the hope that these two early states will cull the field is kind of a strange hope. But it's it it, it makes sense, too, because you don't want to have six candidates running all the way through June. You want to have it cut down to, you know, one as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Especially in an incumbency year. Right. And, you know, and the Democratic Party, they really want to, you know, take out Donald Trump. And there's an awful lot of 
uh, Democratic voters who have said, we're going to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in I- so one of the things that did happen in Iowa was that the turnout was relatively low. And that had a lot of uh, Democrats concerned. It was, it was about 170,000, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah. which is about 60,000 short of the record in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of polls show that Democrats and I were going to vote for whoever the nominee is. They really don't care uh, which one it is or if, you know, they do care. Because which, is, which is something the DNC hopefully wants to see. Sure. Yeah. They, they want to see that. But what they also would like to see is they would like to see uh, energy to and enthusiasm yeah. to not have the Democratic Party leaders worried that, well, if people aren't going to come out to the Iowa caucus, which is so super important in deciding the, you know, who the top candidates in the field are, then they're worried that those people are going to stay home in November. So it's, it, but it's hard to know. You know, it, it's really, there's, there's the glass half full and the glass half empty feeling for sure right at this moment. And there are some people that feel like, well, it's, that's not a bad sign. And others are worried that it is a bad sign. Well, and this is also something you talk about on your podcast, that um, the Iowa caucus system, it takes a lot more time out of an individual's day than a normal primary system does. Absolutely. And it always favors candidates who have high-intensity supporters, Mm -hmm. and it also favors candidates who have supporters who have the ability to go and spend a few hours of their day uh, at a caucus Mm -hmm. and who are willing to subject themselves to a public process. You know, it's it's one of those things where you you might have a you, favored you candidate. Can't, you can't mail in a caucus vote. You can't mail in a caucus vote. You also can't conceal who you're supporting yeah. from your neighbors. And the it's what's interesting is that you know in democratic theory, the idea behind uh, different processes, you know, the caucus and the primary are the two ways you can cast a vote. One is publicly by standing in an area and proclaiming. The other one is privately in a, in a private voting booth. Americans are very used to the idea of keeping our ballot a secret, but there are some Democratic theorists who believe that it's actually way more democratic to make people have to express their preference to their neighbors and publicly because what that means is you actually have to really stand by your vote. Uh, And if you're doing something that you maybe, uh, you know, like I'm going to vote for this candidate just because they're going to cut my taxes, but then you would have to stand up in front of your neighbors and say, I'm voting for this person because I'm being selfish and self-interested. Well, and that's, um, I mean, I guess that's an interesting idea in the specific context of Iowa, too, because, um, I mean, like you were saying, it would make sense then that if you were going to vote in self-interest, then you would that would be less likely in a caucus system. However, the Iowa caucus system tends to yield more centrist conservative candidates than it does progressive candidates. Right, Correct well, me if I'm wrong. No, yeah. that, that, that's mostly just because of the nature of the electorate. Yeah. Uh, and one of the problems with Iowa and New Hampshire going first, you know, they're, they're way whiter than the electorate as a whole. I think Iowa is 90 percent white. Mm-hmm. The United States is 72 percent. New Hampshire is even whiter. It's 93 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, is that uh, candidates who are thinking about getting into the presidential race, who know that they will not play well in Iowa, they don't even get in. And so it's not as though Iowa and New Hampshire are even just winnowing the field here during these two weeks that the uh, voting is taking place. There's actually a silent primary well before this where people who know that they cannot come out of these two uh, states looking good at all, they're not even going to get in. Now, mm-hmm. they're, you know, Mike Bloomberg... He's not even participating in these two. And he has he's he's a unique candidate in the sense that he has his own money and he also yeah. is kind of an outsider in the Democratic Party. Uh, but there are plenty of candidates who didn't even who weren't even in Iowa. Cory Booker, you know, he here's here's a black senator from New Jersey, could be an excellent president. 
he can't play in Iowa, and so he's he's not going to come out of there anywhere but fifth, sixth, or tenth. So, I thought that Cory Booker. Cory Booker had officially dropped out. He did, but that's what, what I'm saying is that okay, yeah, he, that was the the fact shadow that he, primary. The yeah. fact that he even got in the race in the first place was, in a way, kind of an act of naive optimism, mm-hmm. uh, and not to say that that's bad. I wish that more candidates would try to get in and who and would try to survive past Iowa and New Hampshire. But so far, that's not the way the Democratic nomination. That's not the way either nomination has gone. So, what's the argument being made against a single national? primary day there's there's not really an argument so much as there's tradition yeah there's a lot of tradition and And i I do think you know one of the things i mean it helps build a narrative that's an argument it does and i think one of the other things about the process is that if we had a national primary or even if there were say three super tuesdays you know it divide divide the primaries into, into thirds and have three tuesdays in a row you're a candidate for president and you need to go all over the country and if all of these elections are happening on the same day... That's hard to do. It's hard yeah. to do. And what what is great about the primary system is that these candidates... So you're going to be president of the United States someday, and you're not going to get to mix with regular people at all, mm-hmm. except you know when they bring the Boy Scout troop to the Oval Office yeah. and that kind of thing. When you have to go to the Iowa State Fair... Yeah, you got to go look at the butter cow. You yeah. have to go and mix with regular Americans. And it's it's kind of nice. It's very tiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it takes a lot of uh, organization and a lot of money mm-hmm. to, to go around all these places. But it's, yeah, it's all it, about the Iowa ground game. It's, yeah. But it's nice that, you know, when there is actually a contested primary all the way through May... These candidates, they have they have to go to all these different states. Mm-hmm. They have to then go to Nevada and South Carolina and, and Virginia. It, it, if they had to choose, if they had all the primaries on one day, they would choose the biggest states. Yeah, they'd be in California. They'd be going mm-hmm. to get the delegates. And uh, here, they're not in Iowa for the delegates. No. Uh, clearly, that's they're the They're there math. for the narrative. They're there for yeah. the narrative. And so the, the, the process, you know, like any democratic process, it has its trade-offs. There are some... I think really good things about a caucus, like the fact that you have to go and, and discuss with your neighbors essentially mm-hmm. who you're going to vote for. You have to make a public proclamation. the The downside is that it's very exclusive. You know, the only uh, people who have the time, the wherewithal, and then the most high intensity candidates will will get good turnout. So you're getting something really great out of a caucus. You're getting you know one of the most democratic things possible: a discussion among members of a community to decide who their presidential candidate's going to be. That That is tremendously democratic, but then it's exclusionary, and that is obviously super undemocratic. Well, and it also takes a tremendous amount of money to create the actual ground game infrastructure to have people in the caucus system that are lobbying for your candidate, correct? Well, you know, it's, it is, it's less about money and more about enthusiasm and supporter mm-hmm. energy, and that's where the narrative kicks in, too, is that you know, if if you look like you're a viable candidate, you know, Pete is he's he's his supporters are enthusiastic about him. But enthusiastic supporters can get dispirited or they can get re extra energized. And one of the things about his showing in Iowa is that it gives his supporters who are kind of, you know, following a wing and a prayer sort of thing. Now they're starting to say this could really happen. Yeah, there's a narrative. Pete yeah. could be in the White House. And, and that's going to now people oh, are going to. It's not like they had an electoral victory for Pete to go off of. Right. And so so when you get these early victories, it's really is it's it's going to help with fundraising. Mm-hmm. And the money is necessary to organize uh, your ground game nationally. But you can you can do Iowa, New Hampshire on a shoestring budget. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you can't do is you can't do them on a thin amount of supporter enthusiasm. And so a big part of what you're trying to do in those states is generate that enthusiasm. And then if you get a good out come then you get the money then you get the money and then you get more enthusiasm and then you get more media coverage i mean who is talking about elizabeth warren this week that's been of course of course they are but not as much as if she'd come in second elizabeth warren's name would be on so many more people's lips and the story would be completely different if it were bernie and warren and first and second exactly Mm -hmm. uh so it is what is definitely the case is that money is important in the long run and early victories will help you generate that money but early on, and this is one of the reasons why it's actually pretty good to have these early contests in small states, is that, you know, you can run for president on very little budget by going to the Iowa State Fair and yeah. by going to Nashua, New Hampshire and sitting in the grubby editor's office and getting the endorsement from the Nashua yeah. Register, whatever the, the newspaper is, I always forget the name of it. You can you can really kind of uh, sweat equity your way into yeah. the if nomination. you're just there a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and everybody knows that that's the case. If the first primary were in Florida or if the first primary were a Super Tuesday thing where there's 500 delegates up for grabs in, in eight states, there's, you would, that would be the case where you would absolutely need a ton of money going yeah. in. And that would be also very exclusionary. And that would, that would definitely always give the advantage to super establishment people like Joe Biden and mm-hmm. like Hillary Clinton uh, because you can't sweat equity your way into a Super Tuesday victory. Yeah, you can't go to eight state fairs on the same day. No, and you can't travel around the country and you can't, I mean, you can't even have enough field offices in California without, uh, you know, that takes money, but it also just takes a lot of supporters. And if you're kind of a relatively unknown person, where do you get those supporters from? Where do you get enough people to set up 50 field offices in California? Well, right now you get them from Iowa. Yeah, Yeah. well, and now you do. And, uh, but, you know, and that's the thing is that who, who even knew who Pete was? Honestly, I can't even pronounce his name yet. Pete Buttigieg, is that right? It's embarrassing um, that I'm a political science professor and I'm still learning the candidates' he's names. He's actually changed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It used to be, I don't know, I don't remember, but I saw an article that um, in 2017 it was a different pronunciation, and now it is Buttigieg. Yeah, Buttigieg. Easier, yeah. You have to make it more yeah, uh, accessible. Yeah, tone it down. I, just call him Pete. I mean, he's yeah. going to be Pete. He'll, be, he'll probably be, if he wins, what it says on his he posters. would be President Pete. You know, that's how we'll refer to him. I mean, Bernie, like, Bernie doesn't even need the last name. No. He's like Madonna at that point. He's just Bernie. Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Elizabeth Warren, it's always Elizabeth Warren. Right. There is no Elizabeth. Exactly. There's no, you're right. No one's going to go around calling her Liz. Well, I mean, that was really pioneered in 2016 by Jeb. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, our culture is just becoming less formal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just really, even if you look at pictures of candidates, you Mm -hmm. know, now you go to Iowa and you don't wear your stupid white shirt and your blue tie at the Iowa State Fair. Now you're allowed to go without a tie. And I think that the deformalization of of the political process is really actually kind of nice. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it does seem really like, why do these candidates who are on stage at the debate earlier this week, why do they have to be wearing suits and ties at 11 at night? Because they're on camera. Yeah. And again, there's a certain level of tradition there. And, yeah. But also it speaks to you know, certain voters. I, I think this group is dwindling. Yeah. Uh, will they, I think they're they won't take people seriously. Yeah. Unless they look that way. But I think that that is definitely on its way out. In fact, it's it's harder to take somebody seriously who's all you know, buttoned down in the traditional garb. Uh, and I, and I, th- I think that's a good change as well. But honestly, your, your generation, the, the voter turnout rate for oh, yeah. 19 to 29 no, year olds is low enough that candidates aren't yet going to pay attention to what speaks to students. Mm-hmm. 
Though that is different in the primaries. You know, you could if you get a lot of youthful energy uh, in the primaries, you can you That's can a game changer. It's a yeah. game changer. Those people are going to vote in fewer numbers relative to the overall electorate in the general election. So you can't rely on that voter base in November, mm-hmm. but you can sure rely on that voter base in February and March, and uh, or at least that activist base. Yeah. Young people who are going to you know who who will actually work for a pittance <laughs> or even for free. Uh, whereas somebody, you know, I don't have that luxury. I have yeah. I have a family and kids to support. I'm not going to go, uh, you know, work for yeah, some you sweat can't equity fly campaign. Out to New, New Hampshire and canvas all day. No, yeah. I can't. And not. I mean, I could, of course, but it's it's definitely a lot. It's it, it would be a bigger decision for me to do that than for you to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, Jack Miller, thank you so much. Your podcast again is potholeproblempodcast.com. That's right. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure talking with yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Anytime. All right, you've been listening to Situational Significance, a co-production between KPSU and the PSU Vanguard, and have a great day.